Amen. Well, if you'll open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, Hebrews 11 will be where we find our text of this Lord's Day. If you've been uh, with us, you know we've been walking through the book of Hebrews, and now we find ourselves about halfway through chapter 11, uh, where we have seen the writer of Hebrews pointing out to us what true, genuine, biblical faith looks like. You know, he tells us at the beginning of chapter 11 that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then he walks us through the lives of Abel and Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah, and points out for us what true biblical faith is. And uh, today he'll continue to do that by looking more at Abraham and at his descendants. And so we're going to be picking up this Lord's Day in Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 17 and going through verse 22. And out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, I'd like to ask you to stand as I read today's passage for us. Remembering this is the inspired, holy word of God. And this is what God says to us as people. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. If you will, pray with me. Father, we are surrounded by a culture of chaos and anxiety and worry and of fear. And yet, as we come to your word today, when we don't find chaos, we don't find disorder, we don't find anxiety, what we find is faith. True, genuine, biblical, saving faith. So, Father, we pray that that is what you would give us today. That you would lead us in faith. That you would help us to walk by faith. That you would enable us to live by faith. And that we would trust and hope in you. Lord, I pray for all the anxiety, all the worry, all the thoughts that might be running through our minds even now. And I pray that you would help us through the power of your Spirit to focus in this time on your word and that you would teach us from it about the gospel of our Lord Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. I was reminded this week that three of the most misleading words that I think we can come across are some assembly required. Maybe you've had an experience like that. Um, as you all know, my father over this last year has been going through treatment for cancer and he's doing uh, well. And one of the things we've been planning this year as he's been recovering is a couple of fishing trips. And so to make those a little bit easier on him as we go to the coast, uh, he bought a, a fishing cart for the beach. And of course, he, he sent it to me to put together. And so uh, I brought this big box in and I dumped out all the the uh, different parts and put the box in the trash can and then as I looked around the parts I noticed one thing seemed to be missing and that was instructions and finally in a little 
plastic bag on a piece of paper about this big, uh, I found what uh, they said were instructions. On one side, it was a parts list. On the other side, it was some words put together. But left to that, it was very hard to figure out how to put all this stuff together. And so I went back outside to the trash. I got the box back out because on the box, uh, there was a picture of what this cart was supposed to look like. So then with the picture and with those few instructions, I was able to put together something that looked similar to what was in the picture. I only had about five parts left over, which I assume are spare parts uh, that we might need at some point. But, but I needed uh, that picture along with those instructions to figure out how to put all this together. And in some ways, that's what we experience when we come to the Word of God. There are places in God's Word that are extremely clear to us. We, we don't need any further instruction. We don't need any big pictures. They just jump out of the page and we know exactly what we need to do. For example, when we come to Matthew's Gospel, we read about Jesus coming up to Matthew and He gives him those two words. He says, follow me. And the Scripture tells us that Matthew rose and followed him. We can then apply from that in our own lives. Jesus calls us to do the same, to follow him. Very easy to understand that. But then there's other places in the Bible where we come to text and we come to passages and it's kind of like that piece of paper I found in that box. That There's some information there. But without a big picture, it's hard to understand how to put it all together. And we find a passage like that in Genesis chapter 22 where God calls Abraham, this man who had walked by faith, this man that was well beyond years of having children, he and his wife Sarah, he calls them when they get this child of promise, Isaac, he calls Abraham to sacrifice his son as a burnt offering. This is a passage that critics of the Scripture, that skeptics of the faith look, like and look at in confusion, they pointed out is why would a loving God ever ask someone to offer up their child as a sacrifice? And if all we have is Genesis 22, it's hard to answer that question. But what we need to do is to step back from Genesis 22 and look at the big picture of God's Word. Come to passages like Hebrews 11 where the writer here picks up and gives us even more information about what's taking place there so that then we can see how Genesis 22, how Hebrews 11 fit into the big picture of God's Word, then we can learn how this fits into biblical faith on the part of Abraham. And then we can learn how it points us towards the Gospel and points us towards how we too can have true, genuine, saving biblical faith. And I hope that's what we can do today as we take some time to look at this passage. As we look at it, we'll be doing what we've done so far in Hebrews 11, where we've been distinguishing between what does true biblical faith look like, especially in a culture that looks at our faith and says we just have a blind faith, a faith without substance, a faith without evidence. Now in Hebrews 11, we see we have a biblical faith, a faith grounded in the assurance of God's Word and the promises of God's Word, trusting in the commands of God's Word. And we see examples of that in the text today as we consider Abraham and his descendants. So we'll begin by looking at the first point there in your outline about biblical faith, and that's this. We learn that biblical faith relies on God's sovereign plan. Biblical faith relies on God's sovereign plan. 
And it's here again in Hebrews 11 that the writer picks up on what's taking place there in Genesis 22. But to understand Genesis 22, you have to understand what's taking place before there. And we've talked about this as we've been walking through Hebrews 11. Uh, Abraham was a man that God called to leave the land of his fathers, the land of his family, and to take his wife Sarah and to go to a place he'd never been before, to a land of promise. And God told him that he was going to bless the nations through him and that many descendants would come from Abraham and Sarah. The problem, of course, with that is that they were old. They were well past the age of having children. And yet God was faithful to his promise. And as we get to Genesis 21, we find this couple who were well beyond the years when you would have children being blessed by God miraculously with the birth of Isaac and celebrating this birth, this son that God had given them. And we don't get much farther past Genesis 21 in this celebration until we abruptly come to Genesis 22 where God calls Abraham to do something that seems unthinkable. He calls him to sacrifice this son. Now to understand what's taking place here, we have to put all these pieces together. For example, in Genesis 22, we read very clearly what God is doing here. The scripture tells us that God is testing Abraham this was a test now let me ask you guys a question especially for you children and students here this morning how many of you enjoy getting tested in school anybody at all no hands this morning yeah I, I should put mine down because as a student I didn't enjoy tests either in fact I got pretty anxious about tests because oftentimes when we think about tests in school we think about a teacher putting before us a test, and they're going to ask us about all this information that's been covered, and that it can be quite anxious if, if you're not quite sure what's going to be on the test. You're trying to cover all this information. Maybe you even know all that and you've comprehended all of it, but you're not sure how well you're, test on, you're going to test on it. Worldly tests like this, educational tests like this, they're basically testing what you know and what you've learned. But that's very different than the way we see God testing people. When God tests, He's not testing just to see what we know or what we've learned. When God presents a test, He's using that test in order to help us learn and help us grow. He's using that test to grow us in godliness. He's using that test to sanctify us. As believers, He used those tests to make us more and more like His Son, Jesus. And that's why we read in James chapter 1, verse 2, that we are to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. For we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness has its full effect so that we might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the Bible says that godly tests are very different than worldly tests, that with godly tests we should actually consider it joy. Why? Because God is growing us in our faith through these tests and that's what we see him doing here with abraham as he tests him how does he test him what well, calls abraham to surrender the thing that was most precious to him this son that god had given him and sarah this son that they had longed for and this son that seemed quite impossible that would ever come to fruition and yet god gave them this child and he calls Abraham to offer his son. He says, your only son whom you love. 
Now the question for anybody who comes across this passage is this. Why would Abraham even consider what God is asking him to do? Why would Abraham even consider offering up his son Isaac as an offering to God? And the answer that we find in Genesis 22 and in Hebrews 11 is that Abraham was able to do this because he trusted in the sovereign plan of God. He knew that Isaac was the child of promise. He believed God's promise related to Isaac. He also knew that God had a sovereign plan for his life and that as a follower of God, he needed to trust in that plan. And he trusted in God's sovereign plan so much, he was willing to step out in faith and do that which seems unimaginable to most of us. And that's why the writer of Hebrews says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac your offspring shall be named. And so we see here this tension where Abraham was able to do this because of the promise God had made and because he trusted in God his father, even if he didn't fully understand what was about to happen. I was reminded of how we are called to trust in God the same way. Not long ago, as I was reading a story, a situation that took place, uh, it was recounted by Jill Briscoe. Jill is the wife of Stuart Briscoe. Uh, Stuart's originally from UK and was a pastor in Wisconsin for about 30 years. And uh, he and his wife, Jill, have done a lot of writing and, and speaking. And uh, on this particular uh, book that Jill was writing, she talked about a, a situation that took place with their son years ago. Uh, their son, David, was six years old at the time. And David had fallen and hurt his arm. It was late on a Friday afternoon, and so uh, Stuart, his dad, called the doctor's office and explained what had happened and explained the symptoms. And the doctor says, well, it doesn't sound like it's broken, but we probably should do an X-ray. Uh, but it'll be fine to wait the weekend. Just come in on Monday, and we'll do the X-ray. And so uh, Stuart and his wife sat down with David and said, hey, you're going to miss school on Monday uh, because you have to have an X-ray. And so they went through the weekend. Monday came, Stuart went to get his son David, uh, and he noticed his six-year-old son seemed just exceptionally nervous about what was about to take place. And in fact, as they were on the car on the way to the doctor's office, Stuart looked over to David and noticed that David was just, he was just white as a ghost and his hands were shaking. He, he was terrified. And so Stuart looked at his son David and said, David, listen, bud, you, you don't have to be frightened. You're getting an x-ray. I'm going to be right there with you every step of the way. There's nothing for you to be frightened about. And with that, that six-year-old boy, David, looked at his dad and he said, Dad, don't tell me there's nothing to be frightened about. I know exactly what an execution is. True story. I mean, imagine that. Uh, Jill later wrote about, imagine what went through that little six-year-old boy's mind that whole weekend as he imagined his father was taking him on Monday to an execution. And as you imagine that, how astounding is it that he still got in the car with his dad? And she pointed out the lesson there, that he was their son, quite confused about what was about to happen, but what he knew was the love of his father. And what he knew is that his father would take care of him. 
And so he was willing to get in that car, even with the fear of something awful happening, because he knew and he trusted his father's plan. What a picture, friends, of what you and I are called to do. Especially at times in life when we don't know the outcome and we're not promised the outcome. Especially at times in life when we are overwhelmed, burdened, worn out, stressed out, when life does not turn out the way we thought it would. In those moments, God calls us to get in the car. God calls us to trust in Him and to trust in His sovereign plan. And that's exactly what we see Abraham doing in Genesis 22. And that's what it is that God commends him for in Hebrews chapter 11. And that's where we're reminded that we too are to trust in God. Why? Because God is working all things together for his good and sovereign plan. It's what we read in Romans chapter 8 verse 28. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And notice what we read there. We read that God is working all things together for His good. It doesn't say that all things are good. There's lots of things in this world that are not good. There's lots of things that you and I will experience that are not good. And yet, in the sovereign plan of God, in the comfort and care of the hand of God, we can trust His Word that He is working all these things together for His good and sovereign purposes. And we're called to trust in Him. And that's what biblical faith does. And that's what Abraham did. In fact, Abraham, not knowing exactly how this was going to work out, continued to walk in faith. So much so that we read in Genesis 22, as he and Isaac were going up to that place of sacrifice, his young son noticed, wait a second, we've got the wood and we've got the fire, But where's the sacrifice? And you may remember what Abraham said to his son. He said, God will provide, son. God will provide. And that's exactly what he did, and in a powerful way, which leads us to the second point there in your outline. Biblical faith rejoices in God's power. Biblical faith rejoices in God's power. So notice what Abraham does here. He he doesn't know exactly how this is going to work out, but he's got the promise of God. He's got the command of God. He's walking by faith with God. And Hebrews 11.19 tells us this, that Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, we read this, this side of salvation history, and we read raised from the dead. Well, we got a picture of that in Scripture, don't we? We ultimately have a picture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have a picture of the ministry of Jesus where He raised the dead. But you've got to remember, Abraham's on the other side of the cross. Abraham doesn't have this list of resurrection stories. Abraham is looking to God's promise and God's command, and he's trying to put these things together. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says, he considered. Now that word there means that he was determining by a mathematical process. He literally was trying to put all the figures and facts together and the equation together to reconcile how can this be. He was looking at the promise that God had given him. Genesis 21, verse 12, Abraham is told by God a promise, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That meant that from 
Isaac would be born nations. That from Isaac there would be children, and there would be children of those children, and God was going to bless the nations through Isaac. And yet, as Abraham received this promise from God, Isaac was a young boy. Isaac had not been married. Isaac didn't have any children. But Abraham knew this was a promise God had given. And then Abraham had to figure, well, how does God's command fit into this promise? This command that he was to take his son, whom he loved, and he was to offer him as a burnt offering. Now, those things seem irreconcilable to us. How can the nations come from Isaac? How can Isaac have all these children? And at the same time, Isaac be offered as a sacrifice to How is this going to fit together? And this is what Abraham's considering. This is what he's putting together. But then as he's doing that, he's got other information he's factoring in. For example, how he got Isaac in the first place. Remember, Abraham and Isaac, this is not just a story of a couple who's a little bit older having children. I mean, we encounter people all the time where it might seem that they're old enough almost to be grandparents and now they're having a child. That's a natural thing that happens. But they are well past the natural point of having children. This will be a child that will be a miracle. And God does what is unnatural and He gives them this son. And they rejoice in that. But they don't rejoice at first. At first they're skeptical. At first they're questioning. At first, Sarah's laughing when she hears this news. And what does God say to Abraham and Sarah? He said, is there anything too hard from God? Is there anything God can't do? Is there anything impossible? It points us forward to that moment in salvation history where there's another impossible situation where there's the Virgin Mary being told that she will be with child by the Holy Spirit. What does she say? Well, how is this possible? And what is she told? Nothing is impossible with God. And so Abraham, he's, he's learning this lesson. And so he starts to put all this together. Here's the promise of God. Here's the command of God. And here's the power of God. And nothing is impossible with God. So what does Abraham do? The writer of Hebrews tells us he believes that God is able to raise his son from the dead. He will follow the command of God, and he will trust in the promise of God, and he expects to see the power of God. Now, I think one of the plagues on the church today is that we only trust God to do things that when we're honest about it, we really can figure out on our own. We don't ask God to do impossible things very often. We ask God to do very natural, logical things. Why? Maybe it's because we're scared of being disappointed. Or maybe it's because we've lost a bit of what it is to be in awe of and trust in a God in whom, with whom nothing is impossible. God is all-powerful. God is our Creator. God has made promises and God is always faithful to keep His promises. God has given us commands and He's called us to obey those commands and we need to trust in the power of God. Not just in the power of what we can accomplish and what we can do. And notice what happens here with Abraham. 
as he trusts in the power of God, as he's prepared to follow the command of God, he gets to that moment and then God stops him. And what does God do? God provides a sacrifice in the place of Isaac. He provides that ram that's caught there in the bushes and, and Abraham sees the power of God. In fact, he looks at it and he says, this place we're going to call the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. Now think about that for a second. Why would Abraham call this place where God provided, He did provide, a substitute for Isaac? Where God did provide a way for His promise to come true and His command to be followed. Why did Abraham call it the Lord will provide, not the Lord did provide? And I think the reason is because Abraham was looking at the big picture. Abraham was looking at something bigger than what was taking place just in that moment. In fact, as we study salvation history, we understand that Abraham, through the inspiration of the Spirit, was actually looking ahead to the cross of Jesus Christ. He was looking ahead to the promised Messiah. He's already putting pieces together that this sacrifice that God had provided in the place of His Son ultimately was pointing him towards the sacrifice that would be God's Son. Jesus himself points out in John 8, 56, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and he was glad. Abraham understood that he was a part of something bigger. And oh, what a bigger plan God had. In fact, many believe that that very place where Abraham was willing to offer up his son Isaac would be the place where Solomon's temple would be built. A place that thousands upon thousands upon thousands of sacrifices would be made. But none of them would fully atone for the sin of man. And we know historically then that not far from Solomon's temple was a place where the ultimate sacrifice would be made. The cross of Jesus Christ. Where God would provide His Son who would stand in our place. Him who knew no sin would become sin for us. He would take the due penalty for sin that you and I deserve. The Scripture says we've all sinned and fall short of God's glory and the wages of sin is death. But what does God do? Romans 5, 8, He demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us in our place. And Abraham, through the inspiration of the Spirit, was able to look forward to this and he was able to see the power of God. And friends, when we look back on this, we see the power of God as well. Because it's in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we see God takes dead people and He brings them to life. That God takes our dead, unbelieving hearts and He breathes life into us that we might repent and believe. That God takes that which we think is hopeless and He gives us hope. Why? Because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are able to see in the gospel the power of God. That's why we read in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Because it's in the gospel that we see God's command. He commands each and every one of us to repent and trust in Christ. 
It's in the Gospel that we see God's promise. He promises that if we will confess Christ as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, that we will be saved. He tells us that if we will do those things, we will be in His hand, we will be in the Father's hand, no one can snatch us out of His hand. He tells us if we will call on the name of Jesus, that we can know that we have eternal life. He tells us, He promises us that this is true. And He calls us, He commands us to repent and trust in Christ. And when we do, we too see the power that Abraham experienced in that moment. Because that's what happens when we have biblical faith. Point three, finally we see biblical faith then rests in God's faithfulness. It rests in God's faithfulness. Now here, we're given just a, a flyover of so much of biblical history. The writer of Hebrews has taken time to talk to us more about Abraham and Sarah, but then very quickly he walks us through these descendants of Abraham. Now remember the context. Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all died in faith. Who were the all? I mentioned last Lord's Day. I believe that's Abraham's descendants. We see further evidence for that now. Because what is it that the writer of Hebrews points out for us? He points out for us the descendants of Abraham and how they died. And notice the consistency. They all died in faith. They all died trusting God. And yet none of them had fully realized the promises of God yet. They were looking ahead by faith, trusting in God to do what he said he would do. He starts here with Isaac, verse 20. He says, by faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Now time does not permit us to go back and look at all that happened in the life of Isaac and Jacob and Esau. But when you go back and you read that story, you find one of the most dysfunctional families in all of Scripture. I mean, you find the soap opera of soap operas in the Scripture. There is so much lying and deceiving and not trusting God. And yet, what do we see being commended here in verse 20? The faith of Isaac. Why? Because he invoked a blessing on Jacob and Esau. He's able to look at his dysfunctional life. He's able to look at his dysfunctional kids. He's able to look and see how he has struggled to have faith and how they have struggled to have faith and how often they've been marked by their faithlessness rather than their faithfulness. And in that moment, he is able to see the faithfulness of God. He is able to see as he's dying, that while he struggled to have faith, God never has. And God is perfectly faithful. So much so that he is trusting God and blessing his kids, trusting that God's going to bring to fruition exactly what he said he would do. And we see that continues. Verse 21, Then by faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. Here we have a picture of Jacob, old blind, dying, leaning over his staff. And something unique happens here. He doesn't bless his sons. He blesses his grandsons. Now again, there's a lot here that you can go back and look at. What you see typically in biblical history in these ancient days, the father would bless the eldest son as he was dying. But something radically different happens here for a number of reasons. But one I want to point out is this. I believe what Jacob is being commended for here is the faith he had in the promise of God. That God was going to do exactly what God said he would do. That God was going to bless his family in the very way he said he would, even though he had not seen it in his lifetime. So much so, that rather than just blessing his children, he's blessing his children's children. And he is saying to them, trust in God. 
God is faithful. God will do what He said He will do. We see as well this faith being commended in the death of Joseph, who, verse 22, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave instruction concerning his bones. Well, what is he doing here? Joseph is saying, I believe the promise of God. I believe there's going to be a day when our people will be a great nation. I believe there's a day when we're going to be in the land of promise that God has said that He would give us. So much so that what I want you to do on that day when God takes you into that land, I want you to dig up my bones and I want you to take them there because that's my home. He dies looking ahead. And friends, that's exactly what you and I are called to do as well. Except that we've got something much more, much greater than the land of Canaan. We've got a new heaven and a new earth. We've got eternity with Christ our King. And what God calls us to do with our dying breath is to have our focus heavenward and to trust in the promises of God. He does not promise us a life of ease. He does not promise us a life of suffering. In fact, unless Christ returns first, each of us in this room will face death. It's a certainty. And none of us know how that's going to be. We don't know if our heart's going to give out. We don't know if our lungs are going to give out. We don't know if it's going to be some natural disaster. We don't know what it's going to be. We don't get to pick that. We don't choose how we're going to die. But friends, we can choose how we're going to live. And God's Word calls us to live by faith. God's Word calls us to trust in Him. And maybe this comes to you at a time. Maybe this comes to you at a day when you're struggling to trust God. Maybe it's a job, maybe it's finances, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a struggle with sin, maybe it's something else entirely, but maybe you find yourself this morning just struggling. God, are you really going to do what you said you were going to do? God, are you really faithful to keep your promises? Friends, hear from these pages of old that God has given to His church. Yes, God is faithful. Yes, God will be faithful. Yes, God will keep every promise He ever made. And His command to you and I this morning is even while we might not understand how that's going to work out, maybe we don't have all the information in front of us today, we're called to walk by faith and to trust in Him. We're called, friends, to get in the car and trust that God will take us where He's called us to go. And so the call for us this morning from His Word, the question for us this morning from His Word, is are you willing to trust in Him are you willing to have faith in Him? Are you willing to stand on the very promises of God? So if you will, stand together as we consider those questions and go before God in prayer and offer a chance to respond to God's Word this morning. Father, we thank You that our, our assurance this morning, our, our hope this morning, does not rest in the amount of our faith or even in the strength of our faith. It rests in Your faithfulness. God, we struggle to have faith. We struggle to walk by faith. And yet, what we're reminded of from Your Word this morning is that You are entirely 100% faithful, worthy of our trust, worthy of our hope. So help us to trust in You. Lord, there may be some here this morning that are struggling to do that. They may be 
lost in the deception of sin in this world. They may think that they've got to make their own way, their own path, and they may think that that, that path is not a path of obedience to you. It's, it's a path of following their own desires and what they can provide for themselves. Lord, help them to see that our only true hope rests in obeying your word and walking by faith. Lord, there may be others who are wrestling this morning to do that. They, they are confused about what your plan is. They've experienced grief and loss and suffering and pain. Father, would you remind us all that there is hope in the resurrection of Jesus. Would you remind us all that you're making all things new? Would you remind us of what we see in your word, that the day is coming, and oh, we are one day closer to it, of the return of Christ and of glory, when Christ will make all things new. Lord, would you remind us, would you fill us, Lord, with hope that rests in the gospel of Jesus and in your perfect faithfulness. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.